In this episode of The Interface, I sit down with Dave Slack, Director of Engineering at Times Microwave Systems in Wallingford, Connecticut. Dave has been with Times Microwave Systems for almost 24 years, and even though he's in more of a management position now, he still enjoys getting in his reps as an engineer when he can. We also talk about the two things he always wanted to do when he was young, be an engineer, be in the Navy. We discuss the importance of contributing to something much larger than yourself, and we talk through the challenges he faces with Times Microwave Systems growing so rapidly over the past few years. This is The Interface. That's it. All right. And so we're all done. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> uh, Dave, Dave Slack, Engineering Director at Times Microwave Systems, and we're here in Wallingford, Connecticut. Dave, how long have you been with Times Microwave? I've been with the Times Microwave 23 and a half, going on 24 years now. That's, that's a good amount of time. Yeah, it goes by quickly when you're having fun. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that you're having fun. That's always helpful when you come into work every day. At least you have some fun. Yeah, fun is, uh, it all depends on your your definition of fun, but I, I enjoy the job. Good, good. So what's your engineering director? You oversee engineering, but a little bit more specifically, uh, what do you see your role is here at, at TMS? So my role, my role is uh, sort of a coach, coordinator, conductor, so to speak. I mean, we have a lot of people here who are very good at their jobs. I, I believe very much in empowering people at, at all levels with decision-making and the authority to make those decisions. So I try to make sure we're focused on the right projects, the things that are moving the business goals forward, but allowing, but allowing people to make their own decisions and uh, to make their own mistakes and to learn from their mistakes. How much do you still get to do some of the nitty gritty dirty work of engineering or is it largely evolved into just overseeing and making sure your teams are are focusing on the things they need to focus on so we're we're in a transition period right now we're we're growing very quickly and we're we're transitioning from the small company that i joined over 20 years ago to actually a company that's really pretty good size we're working very hard to maintain the strengths and the benefits of being a small company, being nimble, being reactive, things like that. We're trying to bring in the things that are good about being a big company, having some control, having larger company resources. We're trying to gather the best of both of those. But as we transition, there's a lot of uh, rough patches. So I do get a chance pretty often to, to roll my sleeves up and get into details as we smooth over those rough patches. But every time we do, I mean, we have a really good, have a really good crop of engineers. So every time we get through one of those rough patches, we leave behind somebody more capable than, than they were when we entered into it. So little by little, um, it's less and less hands-on, more and more coordinating. But um, I still I still get involved pretty often. I, I actually enjoy that part of it. So. Yeah, I would imagine. So, you know, keep the you know, at least get some reps from time to time and you know, some CAD keep, stuff. Keep the muscles pumped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's also probably like learning to ride a bike is, or riding a bike as well. You just pick it up after not doing it for a few years. But you, you pick, yeah, you don't, you never, you never forget how you may lose some skill. Yeah. You know, some fluency, but you, you, you keep it, keep the, you keep it there. So just back, if we could back up here for a little bit and you talked about coming here as a small company. So, you 
you started almost 24 years ago, but just to go through your history, and you and I talked a little bit before we started here that there were two things that you were interested in growing up, and they were what? Well, from the time I can remember, I always knew I was going to be an engineer when I grew up. Why was that? I don't know. I just, I liked it. My dad was an engineer. Yeah. Um, back when I was a kid, um, you know, you did drafting with uh, T-squares and triangles and things like that. And I had that stuff at home that my dad had. And I could, from the time I was in fifth or sixth grade, I was uh, sketching things and doing things. And I, I just, um, I don't know, it was fun for me. I liked it. Yeah. I liked talking with my dad about the... Uh, we talked about, he was a mechanical engineer, so we talked about statics and bridges. We were building something around the house, and those were always fascinating discussions that I had with my dad. So I've liked to tinker with cars and, and uh, mechanical things, kind of. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer, by the way, but mechanical things okay. are always made more sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, taking things apart, putting them back together mostly taking them apart, not always putting them back together, but I've, I've been always liked that taking myself, things yeah. apart. I'm great at taking stuff apart. <laughs> the, the, the good ones can put them back together. The really good ones can have it work when, the, when it's back together. So you always wanted to be an engineer. Yeah, I always wanted to be an engineer, and I always knew from the time I can remember that I was going to go into the Navy when I got out of high school because I come from a, a long tradition of, of Navy, a tradition of Navy. I have an uncle that was in the South Pacific in World War II, my father was in the Navy. My uncles, his brother was in the Navy with, uh, they were on the same ship for a while. Um, one of my uncles was a career submarine service. He was mm. on the short list to be master chief of the Navy in the late 1980s. So I grew up listening to sea stories my whole life and uh, from every every male role model that I've had. So I always wanted to be part of that. So that's what I did immediately after high school. I spent six years in the service. What was your job? I uh, maintained and maintained and troubleshot and repaired uh, radar and navigation aids, which was actually how I came to know what microwaves and RF and and all of that was. So like, like electronics tech or something like that. I was a, I was an electronics tech. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. So I was in the Navy too. Oh, good yes. for you. Yeah, I held that back from you. Earlier. I knew there was something I liked about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had a lot of friends that were ETs that uh, we hung out quite often. In fact, I still talk to a couple of them fairly regularly. So, really, um, yeah, good. Yeah, Small world. Four years on a USS Rushmore out of San Diego. Oh, me too. What years? Uh, ninety-five to ninety-nine. Uh, I was a little few years ahead of you. I was there from seventy-nine to eighty-five. Okay. Also home ported in San Diego. Yeah. Three yeah. Westpacs in four years. And I only did one in four years. Yeah. Three's a little too much for four years. That is. I was yeah, pretty that's, exhausted by after that. I was ready to get out. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, uh, but now I wasn't like, I was a journalist and a broadcaster. So I was the one on our ship. So, <laughs> and here I am now doing a podcast <laughs> ramp and all. So we both kind of build on our Navy experience. Absolutely. To, oh, there's no question. Yeah, so. I mean, the, 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 and I'm sure that you would probably agree with this. The training that you do i still remember the training and how they documented and detailed training on everything right yeah. pqs yep. all that's personal qualification standards and uh you couldn't really do almost anything in the navy and i know it might sound like overkill 
to most people without getting things signed off, proving that you can do certain tasks and certain jobs. There was nothing that you did, whether it be an ET or your standing watch on the quarter deck um, or you're in CIC with the ops people. You couldn't touch or do anything on your own until you proved that it was done and you and your supervisors would sign that stuff off. Yeah. I always thought about that for Amphenol too and somehow incorporating that into some of the curriculum, maybe not to that extent per se, but to be a product manager or to be an engineer, you need to know these basic things and we're not going to let you on the drafting table or in front of a, you know, in, to manipulate a CAD model until you can prove you do these things. But it, but it's an important concept that you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing anything critical to the mission of whatever the mission is, how large or small, unless you're certified and qualified to do right. that. And we actually... Um, here at Times and probably most of the business units are doing many things like that. We have a qualification matrix for our for our assemblers. They have to be, you know, certified assemblers, certified solderers, certified uh, testers, things like that. It's not, it's not military grade because right. And I and I didn't mean to imply that we don't do anything like that here, but not to that level of detail. But yeah, right. But I think the, the I think the concepts are absolutely. Sure. Absolutely applicable. And it's one of the things I like about Times and, and Amphenol, quite frankly, because the the sense of mission, the sense of being potentially a small contributor, but a contributor of something much larger than yourself, um, that, that, that spirit that is instilled upon one when they are part of an organization like a military organization, I think, I think that transfers over just as directly because of, um, when I started with Times, we were a small company. Um, we were, job descriptions were very loose. And it was mm -hmm. basically, what do we need to get done today? And right. didn't matter really what your job title was. If you could help, you helped. And I, I, um, I love that about being in the service. And I love that about being at Times when I started here. And I love that, I love that about us now, even though we're much bigger. We still try to retain that. Hey, we're part of a we're part of a larger mission here. All right. So, how did you get to then? You you got out of the Navy after six years. Um, how did you eventually get to Times Microwave here in Connecticut? So, I grew up in Ohio, the Midwest. My parents lived lived in Pittsburgh when I went into the service. Um, somewhere over that six years, economically speaking, the area where I grew up turned into the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. So there was very few jobs of any sort there. While I was there, my parents moved here to Hartford. My dad worked for Hartford Steam Boiler, which is located in Hartford, Connecticut. So he had been promoted to the home office. So I, I came up for a visit while I got my feet under me after having been discharged from the service. And at that time, it was 1985, Ronald Reagan was in the White House, military spending was cost is no object and military right. spending in Connecticut was a huge driver of the local economy. And there was five jobs for anybody that wanted to raise their hand and ask for one. Mm -hmm. So I, I got a job here. I got a, some good jobs here very quickly. I met my wife, had a kid, bought a house, and now... 30 years later, and I don't know where the time went. <laughs> now, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm a Connecticut native. So what did you do when you first came here? What was your, I know you said you did a number of different roles, but you were hired as an engineer, electrical engineer? Yeah, I, I got a job. So I had some experience with radar navigation aid. So I took mm -hmm. a job with a company called Radio Research Instrument Company, which did the high-powered side 
of radar equipment for a, for a number of different manufacturers, very small company. Then I, I worked at a company in Norwalk called International Microwave Corporation for a couple of years. They did a point to point microwave data communication links. And then I came to, then I came to times. And at the time it was, as you mentioned, a much smaller company than it is now. I don't think it was part of Amphenol at the time. Is that correct? No, it was not. It right. was, uh, it was part of Smith Industries That's right. at the time. Okay. Once you became part of Amphenol, how quickly did you notice a change in, in the culture and how uh, Times Microwave went about your, your normal day here and normal business activities? Oh, it was almost instantaneous. We were able to focus more on, on the, core, the core of the business. We were able to get back to that small, reactive company that had made us who we were. And fortunately, you're working for this huge corporation that, you know, I found that with just about every every business I've been to within Amphenol, that it's an eight plus billion dollar corporation, Fortune 500 company, and yet you're with a business where you have the nimbleness of a a small, you know, five-year startup as far as what you're allowed to do and how you can make decisions and react quickly to win, secure, and enhance the business that you have. In my in my humble opinion, this is the this is the genius of Amphenol is that they do not they do not drive all decisions out of corporate. Mm-hmm. It's back to my my comments to you earlier about empowering people at the very is the lowest level possible because mm-hmm. they're they're closest to the details. They're gonna make decisions faster. And if we prepare them with the right decision-making logic, they're likely to make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. And Infinol seems to, on a corporate level, on this massive level, they seem to do that. They flow decisions to the business units. The business units flow that, that empowerment down as far as they can. So to me, it allows all the units to be to take advantage of being small companies with the backing and the stability that comes with the, the might of Amphenol. It also, it also drives innovation. That startup analogy that you alluded to is there. The, the, the ability to take chances, and try things, to innovate, and to bring best practices from one unit to another when, right. you, when you find them. Because innovation doesn't, is more likely to happen in small units, I believe, than in large companies. Large companies might drive it formally in terms of R&D and things like that, but the spontaneous innovation the startup type thinking happens in smaller groups. Um, and it's good. It's good to, to have something something spontaneously happen in one business unit and, and propagate it to the others. Yeah, you know, and you bring up something too, and I know you guys uh, here at, at Times have been part of the, um, the military and aerospace group now for the past uh, almost four years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you were with another group in Amphenol, but migrated into the military and aerospace side. And I know one of the things that has started over the last couple of years within the group and in the spirit of collaboration, and I'm, I'm assuming that you're probably a part of it, is the engineering community for all the different military and aerospace divisions getting together, doing technical meetings, exactly like you're talking about. It's just going through best practices. And tell me a little bit about those those meetings and, and how those have helped you and benefited your team uh, meeting with all these different engineering groups that are all playing in the same marketplace. 
So it runs the whole spectrum of engineering activities. So on one on one end of the spectrum, Amphenol, Socopex, for mm-hmm. instance, they're, they're really out front on plating at at a, at, a, at a really material science level, basic science type of thing. So they've got resources over there. They're, they're working this, right? And just this morning I got an email that they're willing to, they know that we're looking for a plater. They say, hey, we've got this. It's really looking good. We can plate some parts for you. We can prototype it. So it's really valuable to have that on one end. On the other end of the spectrum, a lot of a lot of engineering is actually kind of boring. It's the it's the paperwork, it's revision control, it's how do we handle yeah, documents and yeah. things like that. And that's probably that's probably the bulk of the man hours that goes into a, an engineering department is just document control and and things like that. Yeah. So we actually had we actually had a technical interchange meeting, a TIM that we call them who travel around. And we actually had one session that was dedicated to how do we control documents? How do you do it? How do how do you guys do it? And it's and it's actually remarkable on both ends of that spectrum, the doc control or the or the basic science. It's remarkable to me that we, while we have in our group um, some variety of products, the problems that we have are almost identical. The the being a low mix, high volume, or I'm sorry, a, a, a high mix, low volume mm-hmm. manufacturing being so, somewhat custom in our product offerings for the most part and how to deal with that versus a commercialized product. We all have these same frustrations and challenges. So it's it's comforting in a way to know that you're not an island out here, the only ones in the group that have this problem, right? That you, you're not special, that the, the guys up at Sydney are wrestling with the same things and trading ideas and, and thoughts back and forth on how to handle some of that diversity of product and diversity of problems. So right. I found it to be very uh, informative to be collaborative. It's also a challenge too, because we are not all the same products. We're different. We do have problems that are different enough that when you collaborate, you have to find some overlap that you can work on together. So finding that overlap sometimes you have to look for that. You have to you have to really go out and set your days your day to day problems aside and actually look for this overlap and these opportunities to uh, to collaborate. We're getting better and better at that every year. So I'm, I'm very encouraged with the trend. You, I probably should have asked this earlier, but you are in charge of you call it microwave products. Like, what do you call your your product portfolio? What would you what would how would you describe it? So we make we make coaxial coaxial cable and cable assemblies. Okay. So, so <laughs> instead of, instead of just, um, it's, they're a little bit different than most of the other units. We, we, we share, we share products with, um, PC or with, uh, um, SV microwave is probably our most closest cousin. Right. Um, West Palm sim- Beach, Florida, West yeah. Palm Beach. And we're very similar to FSI with fiber optics, mm-hmm. except they use light. We use, we use electromagnetic energy. Um, but basically it's a coax it's a center conductor with a dielectric and then another conductor that's flexible as Mm -hmm. opposed to just you know just a power connector or a data connector they're slightly different they're still interconnects but they work in there in the radio frequency and microwave spectrum one of the things that i'm really impressed in and i love that i love to say to our salespeople when we get together and and we're talking about products is the fact that in our realm of products, in the coaxial RF microwave interconnect, there's this there's this 
breadth of technology. And some many companies are limited to a narrow slice of that technology. If if an application comes along that won't necessarily cannot necessarily use their version of it, they're out. They can't. They're just out. The sale's gone. Yeah. And we don't have that problem because literally every single coax technology on the planet, as far as I'm aware of, we have in our current offering of products. We're we're that diverse. So we never have to sell. We never have to go out and convince a customer that this product will work. I'm sure it'll work, <laughs> right? If if they're not convinced, we can option. We can give them option A. We can give them option B, or option C, which just happens to look exactly like our competitors. If we're competing with something, mm-hmm. we 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 can lay out options. We could point out the pros and cons and talk them through all of that. But we don't have to sell in the in the pejorative sense of the word. We don't have to convince anybody of anything. We just have to point out pros and cons, strengths and weaknesses. I, I think it's very powerful when you're establishing relationships with our customers, especially the customers of the caliber that we deal with, the Lockheeds and the Northrop's of the world. Yeah, and know. and to that point, how much has the the Amphenol connection helped uh, facilitate that effort when you're in front of customers? So one of the things it does is it allows us to it allows us to extrapolate off the ends of that the product spectrum. So mm-hmm. so you have the you have that full spectrum of RF and microwave products, but we could potentially say you know by the way you, you need a you need a fiber cable in that run, we can help, right? Mm-hmm. You need to, you want to run power connections in a bundle with these cables, we we can help with that too. We have. We have people that make those exact products. We have people that actually can pull them together into a bundle. It's truly, we have the option of providing a, a systemic solution, a, a turnkey from the circuit board to the antenna, you know, potentially a one-stop one stop shop. Yeah. Potentially even, even project management of, of having somebody internally kind of managing it within the Amphenol group. So you only have to deal with one person. I don't, don't know that that's common yet, but there's potential there that I think, I think the prime contractors, the, the customer base that we all have would find valuable. You know? Yeah. And just having the, having the capability is something that, geez, our competitors, our, our competitors that I know best don't have that. Right. So I know you guys are, are growing rapidly, which is a great thing brings up its own unique challenges though too and I think you alluded to it a little bit earlier what do you see as as some of your biggest challenges in in your role moving forward in say the next three to five years as you guys presumably uh, continue to expand in the last 30 months we've hired a lot of new people we have created jobs job functions that did not exist mm. these functions would have just been, corollary functions of other jobs we've actually gotten big enough where we needed to specialize a little bit more so we've created jobs so two-thirds of our workforce today are in jobs that either they were not with the company 30 months ago or they're in jobs that didn't exist 30 months ago so so from that standpoint experience level we have a lot of uh you know a lot of maturing to do which is a challenge but i'm 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 just so, so anxious to see how it plays out because I'm convinced when these people become seasoned and they get their feet under them, they get traction, we're going to explode. 
we're just going to explode. And it's, it's starting to happen. We, we, we see the benefits of that starting to happen, but I really think it's going to be exponential and it's just going to just, I don't know when, but I'm <laughs> convinced it's going to happen. Um, that we're just going to see that step function improvement in efficiencies and, right. and things like that. Um, that's that's one of the biggest challenges. And then we're actually, we, we've assigned ourselves a corporate goal to maintain that small company fire in the belly that got us where we are. Mm-hmm. So we know we're getting bigger. We know we're going to bring some specialization. And with that comes some level of bureaucracy and paperwork and all of that. We're making a conscious decision to not become that large company that can't get out of its own way. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to maintain that small company fire in the belly, and so that's a, that's a challenge: is walking that line, having the best of both worlds. But it's, um, in my view, it's so important. And I think you have a great support system to help enable your goals. So I, I mean, that's that could be nothing but. Um, I think it's comforting, I guess is the best word I could think of, to know that you are enabled to to go forth and do exactly what you're saying here, is to keep that fire in the belly, maintain that small company feel as you continue to grow to levels not reached uh, in any previous history here. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're investing in, uh, so we're investing in our West Palm Beach facility, right. as are several of the, several of our sister companies. We're investing in our West Palm Beach facility, Nogales, Mexico, um, India, India later this year, um, Estonia next mm-hmm. year. And part of it, part of it is just extrapolating that amphenol model down within Times Microwave, instead of having Times Microwave Corporate here in, in Wallingford, where all things flow out from, we're uh, we're building these satellite units, allowing them to innovate and do the things that they do, while and then sharing best practices. So it's just it's just a smaller version of the larger model. So again, there's some there's some complications with starting up these smaller sites, these satellite sites, but the um, the the potential benefit is so enormous. Yeah. I can't see any other path forward making sense. <laughs> so I feel I feel real positive on the future for us. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it plays out. That's great, Dave. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for talking to me. You're welcome. Thanks right. for thanks for us. Thanks for uh, putting up with me for yeah, a while. Yeah, sure. Anytime for another fellow sailor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks again. All right. <laughs>